Father, uh, help help us make sense from your word, things you tell us about days to come and uh, individuals to come. Um, Lord, your, uh, your word includes all kinds of things for us, warnings and instruction, uh, some things about the past, many also about the future, and we want to get out of it what you mean for us to this morning. I ask you to help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Adolf Hitler is an interesting person. You know, sort of any way you look at him, he's a fascinating person in the annals of history. He's unique in a number of different ways. Uh, Hitler came to power in Germany at a time when they were just in huge crises. And you remember, we'd had the war to end all wars, World War I. And when that wound down, there was something called the Treaty of Versailles, that really said Germany's to blame and they're going to pick up the tab for World War I. So in Hitler's days, Germany was still just a, a, a terrible place. Their economy was in shambles. They, they still sort of carried a, a burden of this sense of humiliation because of the treaty and the blame. Uh, they had crushing debt. They were supposed to pay off the other nations of Europe for World War I. And that's the milieu Hitler came into. And the Germans were looking for pain relief, and this was a guy who promised them pain relief. Hitler formed what he called the Third Reich, the Third European Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was one, and it had lasted almost a thousand years. Ended in the 1800s. He saw the Second European Empire as the Germanic one that ended at World War I, and it was his policy. He's going to bring in a new world order in Europe. It's going to be centered in Germany. It's going to be the German people. So he came in and he promised them, I'm going to fix your economy. I'm going to restore national pride and and world standing, and I'm your man. So listen to this. Uh, You know, we tend to think of history in the big picture and what an evil monster he was, but listen to this. This is from Wikipedia, and it describes a little bit of his, uh, the way he delivered his goods early, And then the response of someone who'd actually sat and listened to one of his speeches. So, courtesy of Wikipedia, Hitler's vitriolic, uh, caustic, acidic, beer hall speeches began attracting regular audiences. This is obviously before he became chancellor. He became adept at using populist themes targeted at his audience, including the use of scapegoats who could be blamed for the economic hardships of his listeners. Historians have noted the hypnotic effect of his rhetoric on large audiences and of his eyes in small groups. Uh, Kessel writes, overwhelmingly Hitler is said to have mesmerized or hypnotized the nation, captured them in a trance from which they could not break loose. Historian Hugh Trevor Roper described the fascination of those eyes which had bewitched so many seemingly sober men. He used his personal magnetism and an understanding of crowd psychology to his advantage while engaged in public speaking. So that's a little bit sort of of the how, but listen to his effect on one individual. Alphonse Heck was a former member of the Hitler Youth. He describes the reaction to a speech by Hitler. These are his words about the response at this speech he heard. 
He said, we erupted into a frenzy of nationalistic pride that bordered on hysteria. For minutes on end, we shouted at the top of our lungs with tears streaming down our faces, Sig Heil, Sig Heil, arms raised of course, Sig Heil or Hail Victory. From that moment on, I belong to Adolf Hitler, body and soul. This is a young guy who was there, heard it, and his response was the same response of all those other people around him. This hypnotic, mesmerized sense of, this is our Savior. And he says, I felt like I was his body and soul. And a nation felt that way, of course, about Hitler. So, you know, you come to the end of World War II, that's the promise on the front end. You come to the end of World War II, murders, not casualties of wars, murders under Hitler, about 11 million, with 6 million of those being to the Jews specifically, and then attributable to Hitler through the larger war, 50 to 70 million deaths followed his rise to power, Adolf Hitler. He's the epitome of evil for most people, and it's, it's certain that few people could have his claims just on the numbers of people killed, the destruction that he brought. Few people in history can hold a candle to him. And yet, it's interesting that Hitler is a lightweight compared to a figure that God says is still yet to come on the world stage, as, as terrible as Hitler was. God says there's a man that's going to come on the stage that's going to be far, far worse. So, what enabled, if you read about him, a morose, belligerent, failed artist, been imprisoned, what enabled this guy to come and seize control in a sophisticated world like Germany, you know, a world leader, what enabled this guy to come in, seize control, and win over his followers, body and soul? What allowed that? What provided for that? It was certainly more than economics and national pride. Hitler, as you may know, was a fan of the occult, and certainly Satan, satanic power was behind Hitler in his rise to power and what he had going. You know, when you've got all these people talking after the fact, there was a sense of being hypnotized. There was a sense that he mesmerized a whole nation. That's more than one mere man's power or rhetoric. There was demonic agency behind him as well. There's a few weeks ago that we looked at Psalm 2. We were talking in 2 Thessalonians 1 about Jesus' fiery return. And we frame that in the context of Psalm 2, which described earth's rebellion against heaven. And that rebellion, related to the text we're in this morning, gets headed up by this man yet to come, whom Hitler sort of is a precursor to, we might say. Paul calls him a man of lawlessness. And he is going to head up that Psalm 2 kind of defiance, fish shaking at heaven, that says, we're going to throw off heaven your shackles. We're going to have it all our way. So this morning we're going to look at the guy Paul calls the man of lawlessness. He has all kinds of other titles in the Bible. And God puts this there for us for a reason. You know, this is where rebellion goes. This is where disobedience goes. This is where a refusal to acknowledge God and embrace the truth, this is where it leads. This is where the world is heading. A couple qualifiers We said last week, if you're studying prophetic scriptures, John says in Revelation that really 
prophecy is ultimately about Jesus. So at the end of the day, we don't want to focus so much on the Antichrist as Jesus Christ, though we're focusing on the Antichrist today because that's in the text. But we want to keep that in perspective that the end of the story is Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. And it's Jesus Christ that holds our heart. The Antichrist or the man of lawlessness may hold a certain kind of fascination for us. But, you know, it's sort of the fascination of a bomb or poison. You may be fascinated by the effect that something can have, the destructive effect someone or something can have. But we don't worship that. That's not where our heart lies in this destructive capability. Our heart's still with Christ, even though we're studying his antithesis here. Excuse me, this morning. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 10 and focus on the details in verses 3 through 9. And if you have a study sheet, and I'm reading from the Holman translation. We talked about the day of the Lord before, so now we focus on the person who's tied to that coming day. Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter, as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The apostasy, again, remember, a great falling away, a great rejection, apparently, of earth to heaven. And just note, too, in verse 3 there, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Revealed there is the same word used for Jesus in chapter 1, verse 7. This is a revelation of Jesus in chapter 1. Well, this is a revelation of the Antichrist here in chapter 2. Paul says, He opposes, he exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary. This means the inner place of a temple. This means the holy place in the temple. Publicizing that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this. You know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. We're going to work through some scriptures this morning. This sometimes is hard where you're just sort of going through the checklist, so put on your thinking caps, and if you start nodding, I'll just call your name, okay, so everyone knows you're nodding off, and we'll go through here. Start in the text we're in here in chapter 2 and just look through. Your study sheet, I believe, has these listed. Just the particulars about this guy that God says is yet to come. So in verse 4, Paul says, This future man, the man of lawlessness, the guy that looks like Hitler magnified, he puts down all other gods and exalts himself as God. All other religions go, he's God. He demands to be worshipped as God. He sits in the holy place in God's temple declaring himself as God. When you hear Christians talk about there has to be a future temple, this is one of the texts why we say that. 
that we're confident that the Jews will rebuild a temple on the Holy Mount in Jerusalem because the Scripture says this is going to happen. The holy place is the inner sanctum of the temple in Jerusalem. And by the way, if you do a search online, Temple Mount Faithful, there's preparations in Israel today. They've got red heifers that are used to burn, to get ashes, to sanctify implements for use in the temple. There's a priesthood established in Israel today. They've got the utensils to use in a new temple. The Jews, the Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox Jews, are waiting for an opportunity to rebuild a temple and reinstitute the Jewish priesthood. All this is in the works in Israel today. This is not something far-fetched out there somewhere sometime. This, the preparation is actually already going on in Israel today. They're ready for this. They just don't have the temple. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says there's a restraining influence on this guy. That when the restraint is removed, he, he will then fully be revealed. His plans will come full bloom after this restraint is removed. Go down to verses 9 and 10. He's empowered by Satan. He performs false... In the Greek, it's pseudo, pseudo miracles and signs and wonders. And deception is his constant tool. We'll talk about this in a minute. It's not clear how much of what this man does in the future through Satan's power, not sure, not clear, how much of this is real, like Jesus' signs and wonders were real power, and how much is deception. It's likely that there's going to be some degree of both. And then go back to verse 8 to see his end. The Lord Jesus will personally destroy him at his coming. So Paul says here in our text this morning, just before the day of the Lord, the man of lawlessness comes on the scene. He's going to dominate the earth just like ancient rulers did in Paul's day. You remember the Caesars said they were gods on earth. In fact, that's why Christianity ran afoul of the Roman Caesars because they worshipped another god. Caesar, like Pharaoh, was God. And he's going to take on that same kind of status coming up. Now, we're going to work through some Old Testament and some New Testament scriptures just to see what God says about this guy. And again, uh, like poison or like the neutron bomb or whatever, there's a certain fascination with both the corruption and the power this guy wields when he comes to deceive the whole earth. And scripture has recorded actually quite a bit about him. So because God's written it down, he wants us to know about this. This is why we, we rifle through these passages and try and make some sense of them. Again, at the end of the day, it's not so that we know specifically about the man of lawlessness. We want to know what God wants us to know and move on from him to God's Christ, not Satan's. So if you've got your study sheet, we'll go to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and 9 are really tightly linked with Revelation 13. You'll see that as we read through some of these. In Daniel 7, Daniel was given a vision of the seas of the earth. That represents the nations. They're they're in turmoil. and, And out of them come four monsters, one after the other, each one representing a world empire. And the Roman Empire is the last of those. And in the context of Daniel seeing these monsters come out of the sea, he says, while I was considering the horns... Ten horns on the fourth beast that came out of the sea. He says, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. There were eyes in this horn like a man's, and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. 
So on this fourth kingdom that comes out of the sea, there are ten horns, each one apparently representing a king. And in Scripture, horns usually represent power or authority, and often kings. So in Daniel 7, this starts as a little horn, but he speaks arrogantly, and he dispossesses three other kings in front of him. Later in Daniel 7, if you go down to verse 23, the angel tells Daniel, well, this is what you saw, and this is what it means. That fourth beast you saw, it's a fourth kingdom. It's going to devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. There's going to be ten horns. Those are ten kings. They will rise from this kingdom. Another, this is the little horn, different from the previous ones, will rise after them. He will subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. And, you know, the, the chronology here is in symbolic language, but generally it's assumed this means a year, two years, and half a year. We'd say three and a half years. And you remember from last week, just in the chronology that God set up in Daniel 9, we're looking for one seven-year period yet to come. And so this would be half of that period, three and a half years. He's going to change religious festivals and laws. And the holy ones, or the saints, will be handed over to him for three and a half years. So that's going to happen under his watch. If you go to Daniel 9, we read this passage last week. The people of the coming prince, that's the Romans, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Historically, that happened in 70 A.D., The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And then speaking of this one previously called the little horn, he, the coming prince, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. And again, one week here would be one seven-year period. So he's going to make a covenant. Most people understand this to mean a treaty with the nation of Israel. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. He'll break the treaty or the covenant and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So a Jewish temple where sacrifices are being given, and he will come in and he'll put an end to those sacrifices, and this is when he would establish himself in the temple and say, I'm God, no sacrifices to Yahweh, you're going to worship me. Also, if you look historically, there's a guy named Antiochus IV, sometimes called Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Syrian ruler. He was a descendant from Alexander the Great's kingdom. And he, in 160s BC, he came in and he did exactly this. He went into the Jewish temple... He put their sacrifices to the side. He stood in the temple and said, I am God, Antiochus Epiphany. So we know historically this has happened. But Paul says in his day, this same thing is yet future. So just like for us, Hitler is someone that we know a little something about, and that gives us an ability to think, what might this look like full-blown in the future, the Antichrist and the day of the Lord? Well, Antiochus Epiphanes did these very things, 
That's another way. It's, it's a yardstick, if you will. It's some example that we can look at and say, just the way it was described, that's exactly what happened. And you see that in Daniel in the Old Testament as well. So, the coming prince, the little horn. If you go to Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is talking about these same things, and he quotes from Daniel. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. This is when he goes, the sacrifice is over, and he says, I'm God, and you're to worship me. And Jesus says here in Matthew, this is when you guys need to get out of Jerusalem. This is the time to go. Don't hang around. Don't collect your things. Get out. Revelation later talks about God makes a provision for these escaping, fleeing Jews to be preserved through this terrible time, this three-and-a-half-year period, because otherwise, for people around the earth, you know, the 70, up to 70 million deaths in uh, World War II, uh, that will be nothing compared to the death toll during the day of the Lord that this guy oversees. So some estimates are as high as half the population of the earth. So if we're near 7 billion people, up to about 3.5 billion people dying in about a three and a half year period. So, you know, historically this would be without precedent. If you think of the worst of the plagues, the bubonic plague in Europe, when in some places one in every three people died, you'd be approaching the magnitude of death under this guy's watch. But death will be the norm. People will be dying all over the world during this guy's rule. And Jews, some of them at least, will be escaping Jerusalem to a place of safety. 1 John 2, I'll just mention, John says there, you have heard Antichrist is coming. Guys, you've heard that a guy named Antichrist, a false Christ, a would-be Christ, is coming. There's sort of a spirit of Antichrist already in the world, but you know he's coming. And last, moving into the passages in Revelation 13 and 19. How are we doing? Heads up. Yeah. Do you want a fan on today? Are we doing okay? Fans, yes or no? No. Okay. Revelation 13, and you'll see as we read through this short passage how closely this conforms with what Daniel had already said earlier. John sees in this vision a beast coming up out of the sea, just like Daniel 7. This beast, just like Daniel, has ten horns, seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems. Those are crowns. On his heads were blasphemous names. Remember, this is a guy that's cursing heaven. The beast I saw was like a leopard, like a bear, and like a lion. This fourth empire embodies elements of all three of the prior world empires before it. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. In Revelation 12, the dragon is identified as Satan, the devil, the accuser. So we don't have to guess whose power and authority this is. One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. You know, as Christians... What's our great appeal to people to trust Christ? It's the resurrection, right? We say he died on a cross, but he didn't stay dead. The resurrection is proof of Jesus' claims. This future guy is going to receive a wound, the Scripture says. He will at least appear to be dead. And he will appear at least to have a resurrection. And so that's in part why 
people will say, who can make war with the beast? This guy's invincible. He had a wound to death, and he appears to have a resurrection just like Jesus. And again, you can see the parallels. This guy goes to the temple of Yahweh to say, I'm God, not Yahweh, and not Yahweh's Messiah, not Jesus. Verse 4 there, they worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? He's given authority to act for 42 months. Again, just chronologically, it's three and a half years. This is the day of the Lord period. This is the worst time the earth will have seen. And he speaks blasphemies against God. He blasphemes his name and his dwelling, those who are in heaven. He's permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. Now, you know, today for us, especially in the West, we say, uh, God loves me. God has a wonderful plan for my life. And God's not going to allow bad things to happen to me. But in this time period, it's clear God says that God's true followers are given over to the authority of this guy, and he's going to kill them. He's going to kill all that he can. In Revelation elsewhere, it says there's martyrs from this time period that are brought back to life later to enter Jesus' kingdom on earth. But if you're a follower of the true God in this time period, your life probably won't be worth much. You're probably not going to be able to hang on to it. The saints are given over to his power. He's given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Does that sound familiar? When you go back to Revelation 4 and 5, and it says this group is worshiping Jesus. They're from every tribe, nation, race, and kindred. Very similar language. This guy is trying to take Jesus' place. All those who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain or slaughtered in the Holman. So these are, this is part of what's coming with, with him and his watch. And then stick here in Revelation 19 for just a second more. At verse 16, this talks about another beast that comes up out of the earth. And this would be what we would call a false prophet. You remember Jesus had a prophet who said he's coming, John the Baptist. And Hitler in his day had a guy named Joseph Goebbels or Goebbels who was his PR man. Well, this guy has a PR man also. And of the false prophet, John records, he, this is the false prophet, this isn't the beast, the Antichrist, he requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of his name. You know, if you watch any TV or any movies about the future, this time period, everybody's about the mark of the beast and the number of the beast here we'll get to in just a second. You know, with the technology we have and with the economic system we have in place, you could see, though, it would be easy to say, you have to have, uh, let's say, an implant in your forehead or on your hand that will be scanned by a reader with whatever financial transaction you have, and it'll have your data on it, etc. So some kind of mark is going to be required by the false prophet, and it marks those individuals as belonging to the beast. Elsewhere in Revelation, it says God goes through and he marks his own out so that they don't suffer the same thing that these guys are going to suffer. Do you remember, too, there was a time when uh, 
both in the Exodus story where the angel of death comes over and God tells the Jews, you mark your doorpost with that blood. You're signaled out by this mark as belonging to me and you won't perish with the angel of death. There's another occasion in the Scriptures, and I can't remember where it is, I want to say Ezekiel, where God says, before I start this judgment, I want my angel to go out, and he's going to mark on every person in Jerusalem and Israel who has wept over Israel's sins. He's going to mark them out. They'll have a sign on them, they belong to me. I'm not going to curse them. Well, in this time period, guys, you're marked with who you belong to and who you follow. You're either God's in Christ, or you're the Antichrist. There's no middle ground. If you say I'm an atheist, it won't matter. If you say I'm not sure I'm an agnostic, it won't matter. You've got to choose one side or the other. One mark or the other. Um, verse 18 there, here is wisdom, the one who has understanding. Calculate the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. His number is 666. Guys, read all the commentaries you want, all the encyclopedias you want. The guesses are all over on this. Nero's name is 666. It's the Roman Empire. Um, In the time of the Reformation, it was the papacy, the Roman papacy, or the line of the popes. I mean, it's all over. What does the the number mean, and who is this man? I don't know. And I suspect it's one of those things that it may become clear or evident in this day. But right now, the guesses are all over the place on this. Last verse here for now, Revelation 19, 19. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. The beast is taken prisoner with the false prophet. Both of them are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is his end. So the earth and Satan's version of a Christ goes with the armies of the world to Jerusalem to oppose heaven's Christ. And this is the end. They're just seized and thrown into the lake of fire. This is interesting. Do you remember we talked about the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20? Every person on the earth who's not saved is going to stand before Christ and be judged. It says the books are brought out. And God is absolutely just and fair in in the way that fair counts. But It's interesting that there's a certain amount of respect that God shows to every one of the unsaved in that they each have their day before him. They have their time before him. And he brings out the books to to open the books and say, this is what your life was. This is what you did or what you didn't do. And here's the book of life. You're not in it. But there's a certain amount of respect as well as justice there. But with these two, they don't show up at that judgment. Jesus just picks them up and throws them in the lake of fire. They don't stand before that great white throne. I find that interesting. So, summary on these verses. There's yet to come on the world stage one Paul calls the man of lawlessness. He is going to make and then break a covenant with Israel. He will persecute to death Jesus' followers. He will declare himself God in the Jewish temple. He will speak proudly, cursing God and all those in heaven. He will forbid buying or selling without his mark. He is empowered by Satan, and he will appear to have a resurrection. So guys, we can read, and people in the world can read. So God just spells it out for us. Here it is, here he is, this is what he looks like, and this is what he does. So why in the world will anyone follow this guy in the future? It says here, this is what he's going to do. He's going to kill you. Why would anyone follow him? 
Why will the world follow this man of lawlessness? I'm sure there's more than the reasons I've got, but let me give you just a few. The first is that people in this time, they're going to be looking for help. They're going to be looking for pain management and pain relief. And I suspect that when this guy comes in, just like Hitler in Germany, the economies will probably be tanked. You know, the whole world economies, it's on the edge anyway. You know, Europe's further down the road than we are. But the world has taken on massive debt that these governments cannot repay. So if you start getting some faltering of the markets, you can imagine where this could go in a hurry. The economies of the world could easily collapse. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And there's going to be a guy that comes on the scene and he's going to be politically savvy. And militarily, he's going to have a mind that's sharp and with it. And he is going to promise pain relief. And I think initially, at least, he's going to be successful. So there's going to be this sense of people in the world are going to be saying, somebody come in and help us. This is terrible. We need somebody to come and solve our problems. We need a savior. We need a, the cream of the crop on the politicians or the military leaders or whatever. So there's going to be a sense in which there's just a crying sense of desperation and need. Now the trouble is they're not looking to God. They're looking to the people around them instead. So he'll come in in a time in which people need help and they're willing to accept it in whatever form it comes. Let me just say as a caution to us today, you don't have to be in the tribulation period to mistakenly look around you for help to the people you know or, or politicians or government. You know, Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, you put me and my things first and I'll take care of all the other things you need. You put me and my things first, I'll take care of all the other things you need. Guys, when we sort of with a, a kind of insanity or anxiety or worry or fear, when we're looking to everyone and everything around us to save us, but we're not looking to the Lord or praying, we're open to trouble. We don't want to look at politicians to solve our needs. Politics is a big deal. We're obviously in an election. Uh, you cannot ultimately look to government and men to solve our problems. And if you do, you're in trouble. Promises are made and promises generally are not kept our deal is we put god and his things first and we trust him to take care of the rest whatever that looks like that does not mean it's always blue skies and green lights but we're looking to god not those around us ultimately to provide for our needs so he's going to come in at a time in which people are saying somebody help we don't care how we don't care who we just want help a second reason is because he's going to have help and the scripture is very, very clear on this. Back in Revelation 13, 2 again, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, his authority. He appears to have a resurrection. There's going to be real convincing proofs that this guy is more than a mere man. And Satan is behind that. And guys, Satan is not God. And we, we need to make sure we don't bring any confusion here. Satan is not omnipotent. But he has power we don't have. And the scripture is real clear on this. On one hand, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Through his death and resurrection, he's reclaimed all authority. And he's commissioned the church to evangelize in all the earth with his authority. But Satan is still called by Paul the God of this world. 
And when you read in Colossians and Ephesians, principalities and powers and rulers and world forces, those are all demonic powers still operating in this world. And that's the world we still live in, and that's going to be in spades in the future. But Satan and demons do have certain powers and abilities. Some of it's just deception, but some of it's power also. So real quickly, Pharaoh's magicians, when you read the Exodus account, they're able to duplicate the first three miracles, signs of power Moses performs. The staff that becomes a snake, water turned to blood, and the multiplication of frogs out of the Nile River. Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. When it gets to creating life, gnats from dust, they can't do that. But they had power to do things that Moses and Aaron were doing by God's power. There was power there. Or when you read in Job, do you remember the thing Satan does to Job? A wind crushes Job's house and kills his children. Satan controlled the weather. He controlled the wind. Or when the people come in and they rob his flocks and kill his servants... Satan influenced a group of people to go and do something to another group of people. Or in um, Matthew 8 and Luke 8, when Jesus goes to the Gadarene area and he sees in one story one and another story two, these men who are demon-possessed, do you remember the text says they have power such that they can physically break chains. They have superhuman strength because of the demons inside them. Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva. This is sometimes humorous, but these Jewish exorcists use Jesus' name over someone who's demonized, and the demons speak back and say, we know Jesus and Paul, who are you? And this one man overpowers, he throttles seven other men because of the demonic agency within him. So I believe that just as Hitler had this satanic power to mesmerize or to hypnotize or to influence people, this guy is going to have power too. And they're going to be very convincing. However much is deception and however much is really a work of satanic power, not sure, but he will have power for sure to deceive. So he'll have supernatural help. And the last one, and perhaps for my take, this is the most important. Uh, Scan back through Revelation 13, 5, 6, and 7. A mouth was given to him. He was also given authority. He was permitted to wage war. He was also given authority. Nothing this future world ruler does is not permitted by God. Everything he does, he's given authority. And he's permitted to act. And when the world is falling around, falling down around us, we need to remember that God is always in control. God is never not in control. Even when this guy's having his way on the earth, it's been given and it's been permitted. God has permitted it. And we need to remember, no matter what's going on in our life, nothing that's gone on in our life in the past or will in the future means God has lost control or doesn't know what's going on. In this guy's day, it's been given him and it's been permitted. You remember when Jesus is being condemned to death by Pilate and Pilate's sort of pleading with him and Pilate wants to get him off the hook because he knows it's for jealousy. The Pharisees have brought him in to crucify him. And so Pilate says, you know, don't you get it, Jesus? I have authority to crucify you 
or to set you free? And Jesus' response is, the only authority you have is that which has been given you from above. That means ultimately you have my Father's authority to condemn me. If you read in uh, John's Gospel, I think it's chapter 3, verse 27, when Jesus is coming on the scene and, and John the Baptist's followers go to him and they say, hey, uh, this guy's stealing all your thunder. Everybody's following this Jesus guy and not you, John. And John says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from above. By the way, whether you're thinking of the man of lawlessness or what your neighbor has and you don't, this is a great verse for me, that a man can receive nothing but which God has given. If God's given me a little, that's what God's given me. If God's given me a lot, that's what God's given me. If God's given my neighbor more than me, that's what God has given. It's the same thought here. God says, this guy's only doing what I've permitted. His end, whether you read it in Revelation or or 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, here, our text again, you know, the end is just that he sets up his army. He's got the power of the world on his side, and Jesus comes down, picks him up, and throws him away. It's sort of anticlimactic. You know, take all the power of earth, bring it all into one place, whether this is neutron bombs or, or rifle power or tanks or simply the numbers of people present, put it all together, Jesus comes down and goes like this, and the guy's toast. He's gone. He's history. How many here have seen the movie The, the Avengers recently? I know Mosaic watched this clip. If you haven't, there's a funny scene where an alien has come to the world to become a god and rule the world. And it's not going quite the way you imagine. And the Hulk, you know, in, in his Hulk form, uh, is there with him. And the guy says, you can't treat me like this, I'm a god. And the Hulk picks him up and bangs him back and forth. It's like an old cartoon. Ah, you know, he, goes, ah, he whimpers. Well, when Jesus comes, this guy's nothing. He just, you're done. You know, all, all the resistance earth can muster against heaven, Jesus just comes and, you're done, and now I'm taking over. That's his end. You know, for all that he's doing, all the destruction, all the murders, all the claims, all the lies, all the deception, all the signs and wonders, at the end, Jesus just comes and, you're done. Your time is over. Let me mention as we wind down, uh, this text talks about a restrainer. You know what currently restrains him, verse 6. Verse 7, uh, the one now restraining will do so until he, the restrainer, is out of the way. This is back in Second Thessalonians 2. Scripture talks about this restraining influence in the world that prevents this man of lawlessness from coming full, full orb or full fruit before the time God wants him to. And again, just like the number 666 and who it belongs to, the guesses on this are all over the map. Paul tells the Thessalonians, you know. They know, but we don't. He'd spoken to them face to face. He told them they know who and what that is. We don't. Some people say the restrainer, uh, it's an angel, it's human government, it's a demon, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. I tend to go with the last one, but it is anything but clear. They knew. We don't. The point for us, excuse me, would be that this guy can't come onto the scene until God says it's time. I remove this restraining influence, and now he's able to come. Um, 
at the end of World War II, uh, Germany started losing battles. You know, Hitler overextended himself and started losing battles. And so as those, those last days of the war, when the Allies were coming into Germany in the west and the Russian army was coming in in the east, Hitler and his wife went to a bunker and they killed themselves. You know, this guy who was going to rule the world, this very ignoble end, he goes in the bunker and he shoots himself and kills himself. And the Russian army comes and finds him, and they, unceremoniously, they burn his body. And Eva Braun's with him. Here's the guy, you know, at one point in his, his time there, he looks like he's invincible. You know, the German armies are rolling through Europe. Who can stop this guy? And, you know, at the end, he's a corpse being burned on a trash pile. That's how he ended. For the man of lawlessness yet to come, there's a certain fascination with him. Scripture talks a lot about him. He's the epitome of earth's rebellion against heaven. You know, but at the end of the day, it's just like, no, you're you're yesterday's news when Jesus shows up. Let me close with this passage from Daniel 7, verse 9. I love this because it puts the Antichrist and Jesus Christ in the same passage. Daniel says, I'm watching and I see the Ancient of Days take his seat. This would be God the Father. His clothing was white like snow, the the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Put this in your mind. I mean, God, you know, Hebrew says he's a consuming fire. Well, his throne is engulfed in fire. Fire like a river is pouring out from God's presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. It's just like the scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The court was convened and the books were open. And this is, the scene here is, God has set up his court. God has looked down at heaven and earth's rebellion. And God has said, this is my decree. The court was convened, the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. This is the Antichrist. This is the man of lawlessness, the little horn. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. He's just gone. He's just a cinder in God's consuming fire. I continued watching in the night visions and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Do you remember Jesus telling the Pharisees, this is what it will look like. When you see me, you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven. And they knew that was his claim to be the Messiah. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The Antichrist and Jesus Christ. You know, and and in his day, in the day of wrath, he's going to look invincible and people are going to look to him and he's going to destroy, in one text it says, marvelously. But when God says your time is up and Jesus comes, it's just as if he's just a blip on the radar. No power whatsoever. I think it's prudent for us to be aware enough of the prophetic scriptures to say, God, this is what you want us to take away. That, guys, times of great destruction and mayhem are yet to come on the world scene. And if I'm wrong about the timing of the rapture and we find ourselves here, 
we still serve the same God, the same king. We're still headed to the same place. Amen. We don't, you know, the timetables, we can get some things wrong. We just want to know we've received Christ's mark. We're waiting for Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. And we know whose side we're on. And whether Jesus comes and calls today or seven years from now, or whether we endure hell on earth or heaven on earth, we need to know who we belong to. If there's any question in your mind, am I somebody that would receive the stamp of the Antichrist, or do I belong to Jesus Christ? You know, salvation and loyalty and life in Christ is simply by accepting Jesus' free offer He paid for on the cross. That's it. We bring nothing but our sin and our need, and He provides for our solution. He saves us. He redeems us. And it doesn't matter then what happens to us on this earth. Guys, our life here is short anyway. If we live to 100 years old, in the annals of eternity, what does that amount to? It's a breath. You know, it's the wink of an eye. We want to be ready for that kingdom Jesus sets up, that eternal kingdom in which heaven and heaven's Christ is ruling. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you not only have all power and hold all power in your hand, but that you go to the trouble to talk to us about things yet to come. Lest we make any mistake that somehow things have gone outside your control. Father, we worship you as the only omnipotent God and Jesus Christ as your King. And Lord, we bow our knee to Him, and we worship Him, and we ask you to use us in these days you've given us on the earth to proclaim the name and the power and the authority and the future and the hope we have in heaven's King, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name, amen.